American freedom is secured by the commitment of our courts and our people to the rule of law. National Review's The McCarthy Report offers listeners in-depth analysis on the most pressing legal questions facing the country. Alongside National Review Editor-in-Chief Rich Lowry, veteran prosecutor and law professor Andy McCarthy leverages his decades of legal experience to cut through the noise of media hysteria with sober-minded, thoughtful commentary. Tune in to The McCarthy Report on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Mike Johnson era begins and the anti-Semitism in the streets. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brennan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor is Made in Cookware. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, the puff of white smoke went up over the Capitol because we have a speaker. Mike Johnson made it look easy after this challenge had broken. Everyone in leadership above him pretty much shows politics very often is about being in the right place in the right time. He was sitting number four there, didn't have a lot of profile, doesn't necessarily have a lot of friends, doesn't have a lot of enemies. The moderates are willing to go along with him because he's a, a, a nice kind of low, low affect guy. MAGA was willing to go along with him because he's been with Trump on key stuff, including after the 2020 election. What do you make of the Mike Johnson era so far? Well, I think, I mean, one thing to say is I think, in a sense, Gates uh, won. I mean, in a sense, I mean, it was difficult and embarrassing for him, but he got someone that was not Kevin McCarthy, and it looked for a minute like it might circle all the way back to trying a vote for Kevin McCarthy again. But he got someone who, uh, you know, uh, is a little bit more skeptical of Ukraine funding, which is clearly something that was underneath some of the, these debates, at least at times when they pretended to be about political issues. Uh, he got someone who's uh, an unstinting social conservative um, and, um, you know, someone to the, to the right of the party that was acceptable. Um, so, you know, I'm curious how the Johnson arrow began. I mean, everyone, because he had such low profile, you've, you found everyone digging up as much as they could about him. I saw CNN was digging up his statements opposing uh, not just Obergefell, but um, you know, the, the court cases that t- uh, Texas v. Lawrence, which um, you know, mandated the, the decriminalization of sodomy across the United States. Um, and then on the other side, you found you know, some MAGA people finding... Uh, statements from 2020 where he talked about George Floyd and how systemic racism is a big problem for the United States that we have to address and saying, oh, looks like we got a squish here. But, um, you know, on, on the whole, Johnson's a very conservative 
speaker, maybe the most conservative speaker that we've ever had. Yeah, so what the MAGA people figured out, Maddie, is that they couldn't make something happen, right? They tried to make Jordan happen, and you know the appropriators and others just said no. And, and actually, we're really effective in their opposition. They, they planned out we're going to make his no number go up every single ballot by coordinating closely on this. So Trump and his allies, they couldn't do anything about it. But they figured out in the next, when the next guy came around, Tom Emmer, who they made out as this radical never-Trumper, and he was perfectly supportive of Trump, just not fanatical about it. But they figured out, okay, we can block uh, other candidates, and that's our power. And that's where Johnson comes in, because it was very important that he wasn't ha- had the mega crowd accepting him. And, you know, they looked at what he did after the 2020 election. And he seems like a very talented guy. I thought his uh, opening speech to the, the entirety of the House, you know, it's not the most important thing, but I thought it was really well done and winsome and intelligent. But after the 2020 election, he, he led um, members of the House to sign on to this brief in support of this Texas suit to the Supreme Court that was just ridiculous, bad facts, bad law. Part of Mike Johnson must have known this. He also was a ringleader in the, getting folks to try to block the, to object to the Biden electors, you know, saying, well, you know, the states changed their procedures, with they, which they did, which wouldn't be enough, though, to invalidate all these all these votes. So it was a key thing that he was acceptable to the, the mega element of the party. Yeah, so it's interesting that that is the thing that, you know, that National Review and, and others would consider a black mark. You know, he, at some point, he might have to answer for that, but he, this was not that point. The, the MAGA stamp of approval was more important um, in this consideration. He's obviously highly presentable. I mean, we reference his speech. He's, he's got a, a legal background. He's, he gives the impression of being quite likable. Um, he's got that podcast he does with his wife. Uh, just seems like a kind of normal guy, unlike Gates and some of these more unsavory characters. Um, he also doesn't have the, the personal baggage that I think Kevin McCarthy had. Obviously, you can you could read McCarthy's downfall um, as being because of the reasons given that he would work with Democrats to, to avert a shutdown. But uh, you can also read it as being to do with personal animus. Obviously, Gates had it in for McCarthy. Um, Mike Johnson doesn't have that baggage. He's he's an unknown. He's been plucked from relative obscurity, but he does have some very, very big shoes to fill in that McCarthy was a great fundraiser. He was a great recruiter. Um, we don't we don't really know what, what Johnson's uh, going to be able to do here, whether it's going to be any different. Um, but I think I think a lot of this can also just be attributed to the fact that people were exhausted and they they, mm-hmm. they saw they saw him standing there like you'll do. Like let's just mm-hmm. let's just move on. Um, so yeah, I mean, talented guy, but it's it's a lot to do with the circumstances. Yeah. Now Democrats are kind of salivating and making a big deal like they're going to be able to demonize Mike Johnson and use him in races around the country. And I just find that very hard to believe. I mean, I think the 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 interaction with voters will go something like, you know, Democrats, there's this new Speaker of the House that you really need to be worried about, and voters like, oh, oh, really? Democrats, yeah, his name is Mike Johnson. Voters, Mike Mike Jackson? No, 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 Mike, Mike Johnson. Oh, yeah, I went to school with that guy. No, 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 it's, it's another Mike Johnson. Oh, oh, there's another one? Yeah, yeah, who is he again? 
But Charlie, what do you think of going back to the 2020 election? Uh, this is the way I think about it. It's a little um, depressing. But I think Mike Johnson's one of us, right? He's a winger. He's a staunch social conservative. And just un- unfortunately, most of the people who are one of us now, kind of in the post-2016 environment, and he was elected in 2016, are Trumpy or Trumpist in key respects. And that, that challenge to the, the election was an was a important one. I want to disagree first with some of the more optimistic takes on this that I've heard. I think that Republicans have made things worse for themselves with this, with very little upside. The replacement of Kevin McCarthy with Mike Johnson is not going to change the underlying fact that Republicans don't have a big majority in the House, don't have the White House, don't have the Senate. The status quo was the product of that. I think Kevin McCarthy was a better person to manage this small majority than anyone else. I think that's why he was the initial choice. And I think that Mike Johnson is going to be a liability in two important ways, even though if the question were, in my own district, would I prefer to have him or Kevin McCarthy, I would probably prefer to have him. The first reason is that Mike Johnson is not going to be as good at fundraising as Kevin McCarthy was. That fundraising matters, and it mattered in 2022. The Republican Party was able to compete in a whole bunch of seats in New York and California and offset some of their losses elsewhere, in part because of Kevin McCarthy's work. Yeah, he, he, was, he was a good fundraiser and liked fundraising. Yeah. And he's like, you've shot me in the back of the head and I'll still go out and try to do it. You right. know? <laughs> and the second reason for this is that my political views are not the country's. Matt Gates's political views are not the country's. The more conservative side of the Republican Party's political views are not the country's. I would like them to be in some respects, but they're not. Kevin McCarthy was a good face on a broad coalition who did not have some of the baggage that Mike Johnson has. Now, I agree with you, Rich, that this is not going to be the most important thing in next year's elections. But I'm not sure it is a sensible choice to go into that election season with Donald Trump as the face of the Republicans offering for the executive branch and Mike Johnson as the face of the Republicans offering for the one legislative branch that they wish to keep control of. There are a whole bunch of views that Mike Johnson has that are not popular and there will be some hay to be made in some of the seats in California and in New York, in more moderate districts, in places such as Orange County, that Republicans prevailed in last time. So I don't think this was a smart move. And I really dislike the idea that if you think that, then you're somehow a squish. Or that what you're saying is that you wish the Republican Party to be more moderate, or that you don't care about the issues you spend your days writing about. I think that Kevin McCarthy was a reflection of the reality on the ground and that it would have been a good time to get rid of Kevin McCarthy in favor of somebody who was more of a stalwart when the benefits of having a Kevin McCarthy in fundraising and in inoffensive 
optics came to fruition, which they haven't yet. Republicans seem over and over again to want to do the process backwards. They want to jump to the policies that they covet, many of which I covet too, without having built the coalition properly with sufficient breadth to weather the storm. And I see this as a manifestation of it. I accept your point about the election stuff. I also think that there were some people in our politics who managed to stand against it. And I don't think that it is useful or morally appropriate to have someone in a position of leadership who aided in any way with the great lies that Donald Trump told. And I wish that we didn't. Yeah, definitely the the whole thing was completely um, toppling McCarthy, totally unnecessary and counterproductive. Uh, that said, MBD, exit question to you. Mike Johnson will be the Speaker of the House throughout the entirety of the rest of this Congress, yes or no? Yes. Maddie. I'm going to say no. All right. Bold. Charlie <laughs> Cook. I'm going to say yes, and then probably just be replaced by Hakeem Jeffries, the Speaker of the House after 2024. <laughs> I, I think we, when, when this was, we asked this about Kevin McCarthy, we all, all, said, all said yes uh, after, he, after he got in. I'm going to say yes, just because I think it's, it's going to be hard for Gates to declare victory with this pick and then turn around and, and knife him, even though on the spending stuff and, and some other things, he's going to have to do the same exact same thing that Kevin McCarthy did. With that, let's pause and hear from our sponsor this episode, Made in Cookware. Made in has spoken to a lot of people who use their cookware, and they've found that people consistently say two things. They can feel the difference when using made-in products, and they can taste the difference in their cooking. Born from a 100-year family business specializing in high-end restaurant supply, Made-in works with celebrated chefs and expert artisans to craft elegant, professional-quality cookware for restaurant and home kitchens alike. Discover your best dinners ahead with artisan-made, restaurant-quality cookware. Top professional chefs use Made-in, including Tom Colicchio, Brooke Williamson, Grant Atkins, and Stephanie Izzard, and many, many more. Made-in's award-winning nonstick cookware has a double layer of professional-grade nonstick coating. Made-in stainless clad is nearly indestructible and has unparalleled heat retention, making for even heat distribution. Made-in's carbon steel cookware can handle up to 1,200 degrees and is perfect for cooking on your stove, grill, or even an open flame, plus an extensive collection of knives, bakeware, glassware, plateware, and much more are available. We found this all to be true in the Lowry Kitchen. Our made-in pans are great to handle, cook evenly, and very, very importantly, they are easy to clean. So made-in cookware gets our highest recommendation and especially my wife's recommendation. So right now, editors listeners can get 10% off full-priced items on orders of $100 or more from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's madeincookware.com slash editors. So Maddie, we continue to have protests in the streets and a, a debate over what they mean a debate over what uh, Palestine from the river to the sea means. Some people saying, well, this is, you're, you're talking about wiping out uh, Israel. 
clearly and kind of doing on a larger scale what happened on October 7th and others saying, no, 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 this is just, we're just saying there should be a secular democracy welcoming to all people uh, on that territory. What do you make of it? Yeah, so I think there's there's two two things going on and I think it's shocked the sensibilities of many moderate liberals um, who have seen these anti-Israel protests, these mass demonstrations across Europe and in some places in the US as well. And they, they're they like, well, I had no idea that, that we had such a, a problem with anti-Semitism. And of course, there's really, there's two separate groups that I think overlap. And, and the first comes from policies of, and this is specifically a European problem, but policies of mass immigration uh, justified by this, like just completely nonsense philosophy of multiculturalism, the idea that you can import basically a foreign culture uh, with contradictory values and ideals into a European one and they can coexist happily. And obviously that's just that's just not true. If, if you can't assimilate and if you can't integrate um, immigrants, then it, mass immigration is just a bad idea. And we're seeing the effects of that, I think, in Europe. I mean, Europe's had a, a serious problem with homegrown terrorism for, for years now. And the the support for for terrorists um, and the way that it's, it's not just tolerated, but just encouraged almost by uh, European societies is is really very shocking and, and America should uh, see what's going on in Europe and, and learn from their mistakes because in many respects it's too late. But then the second camp, of course, is the the anti-Western elites and the the, the belief that this is just an extension of the, the colonialist project. Israel is a, a colonizer, therefore um, th- there should be no sympathy for them. Uh, we see this all across uh, the academy, we see this in, in student groups. There was, a, I think, a Harvard-Harris poll that showed over over 50% of uh, Americans aged 18 to 24 um, believe that the that October 7th, the atrocities on October 7th can be justified. I mean, that that is very disturbing. <laughs> um, and it's people who just don't believe in, in all that we believe in. They don't believe in... Uh, liberal democracy. They don't believe in the basic freedoms uh, as they e- extend to to all people. And uh, yeah, it it is it is a wake up call in in many respects. So Charlie, you've noticed how a lot of people who are extremely sensitive to any possible offensive content directed to anyone all of a sudden have this uh, uh, epistemological uncertainty about what possibly could be hateful or offensive when it's directed toward Israel or the Jews. Yes, and it's even worse than that. There's the base problem you describe, which is that for a decade now, we've been told that anything that makes anyone feel unsafe or as if they don't belong, they're not included is a problem, and perhaps even hate speech. But specifically, we have had this conflation of words and violence. We've been told that there is a particular problem with any speech that denies the right of a given group to exist. And this concept has been applied extremely broadly so that if you say for example that you don't think men can get pregnant 
then you are denying the right of a group to exist and potentially leading to their death. Well, here we have people running around the streets saying explicitly that they don't believe that a group has a right to exist. Not that there is a geopolitical situation that needs resolving, but as happened at Cooper Union, long live the Intifada. There is not much about that that is open to interpretation. I understand that the New York Times has elected to euphemize it. The people who said that were apparently pro-Palestinians, shouting pro-Palestinian slogans. But long live the Intifada is pretty on the nose. And where is the accompanying outrage? In fact, if anything, we've seen the opposite, which is a sudden return to the value of free speech, which is welcome, but not if it's going to be selectively applied in this sense. We cannot have a situation in this country in which in every other circumstance but those who hate Israel, the standard is hypersensitivity. And the moment uh, that people who are empathizing with or apologizing for or excusing Hamas come into the picture, then we return to open inquiry. And that's what I think we have seen. And I asked in a piece yesterday, and I would still like to know the answer to this, why this hasn't yielded the same mass freakout that we saw in, say, the summer of 2020, when George Floyd was killed. I don't have any objection whatsoever to people saying that what happened to George Floyd was terrible. I don't even have an objection to them saying that it's particularly poignant given the history of anti-black violence in the United States. But the consequences of that killing were so far out of kilter with what actually happened as to be peculiar. We had essentially a totalitarian moment in which everything in our society was taken over. Every incident involving a white cop and a black suspect was nationally debated. Every company felt the need to put out a statement. Every website had a little black box on it with a Black Lives Matter slogan. Major League Baseball, the NFL, hockey, Premier League Soccer in England. They all got on this bandwagon. You couldn't log into Spotify or Netflix without seeing something related to it. Now, I don't think that was a good way for society to behave, but it was the way that society behaved in response to that. We now have 1,400 people being killed in Israel and the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. We have hundreds of protests in the United States. We have a palpable rise in anti-Semitism. We have an incident at Cooper Union in New York in which Jewish students are locked into a library while people shouting about intifadas and knocking on the windows. Those Jewish students are told by administrators, perhaps you could go hide in the attic, which is a little bit on the nose, and nothing. I'm not logging into Gmail and seeing those little black squares. I'm not seeing statements from the CEO of Pringles Potato Chips about this. And I would just like to know why. And I would like to know whether we're going to drop all of these hypersensitive standards that we have adopted now that it has been proven that they only apply when those who are in charge of them want them to apply. Because we cannot have both systems in place at once. We cannot have a system where a student on a college campus who says he believes in Jesus Christ's divinity is shunned because that is somehow exclusive but a student who says long live the intifada is protected by free speech norms. So, MBD, I think you know, part of what's going on here, there's been specific anti 
Israel propaganda and agitation on campuses for a long time that's had an effect. I, I think also we see in these extraordinary numbers, Maddie mentioned one of them in the, these surveys, just how young people are, are not with, with Israel <laughs> uh, the, the way uh, older cohorts are and sympathize much more with Hamas is the fact that you know, we have a generation of students who have been taught basically to hate uh, their own civilization. You know, they might not know who Foucault or Zinn or, or all these characters are, but it's suffused a lot of the premises of what they've been taught. They've been taught the West is about racism and imperialism and colonialism, and that's that's what they associate Israel with. So Israel can't be the victim. Victim. It's inherently the victimizer. And there's some of these characters who, you know, they, they basically implicitly or ex- explicitly endorse that attack and en- endorse the use of, of violence. And, and that's, that's also been part of the um, a- anti-Western um, education they've gotten, you know, to the wretched of the earth, I think, is, is, is taught a lot in, in colleges. And the French philosopher, um, you know, the, the author Fanon, is that how you say his name? He himself says, you know, de- decolonization is violence. It's inherently violent. And you have Sartre, who wrote a preface and kind of put the, the book on the map, saying, uh, you know, it's through, through violence that the wretched of earth become men. They need to exhibit a mad fury. And what did we see on October 7th, if not a mad fury? Yeah, um, it's, it is astonishing that the normal moral categories are totally blurred. I mean, you, you can go on Twitter now, you can search for video and audio of the massacre on October 7th, in which fighters are calling their parents, you know, one fighter in particular, I'll never forget it, calling his parents back in Gaza and saying, I've killed 10 Jews with my own hands. Their blood is on my hands. I've killed 10 Jews. He's not saying I've killed 10 soldiers. I've killed 10 uh, Israelis. I've killed 10 Jews. Um, This is um, a very specific, uh, very old thing. Uh, And somehow our young people can't distinguish between that which is a real genocidal impulse being acted out, uh, and Israel defending itself with walls or with uh, Iron Dome, with um, you know trying to get diplomatic cover to destroy Hamas, which it's targeting specifically. Um, now, people may say it's not discriminating enough in its targets, but it is discriminating in a way that the Hamas fighters on October 7th Never were the way that Hamas's rockets, which are not unguided, are totally indiscriminate. Um, you know the the academic literature you have cited is being used to teach young people that uh, Israelis are just whites, right? And white is basically um, uh, reduced in you know the pages of Ta-Nehisi Coates into a, a devil kind of figure, right? Like white and people who think they are white. It is a political construct that just justifies oppression for its own sake. I mean, I saw um, a viral TikTok from a, a young American Jewish woman saying she was raised by Zionists, but she knows that Israel is a colonialist state and 
then she spins out this conspiracy theory that the British and the Americans decided after World War II just to put Israel there to do their own military labor in harassing brown peoples after World War II. It's like, well, <laughs> you could have fooled Israel, who didn't get any support militarily from the West until decades later. Um, you know, this kind of ignorant trash is is everywhere. Um, but like uh, like I said in a previous broad, uh, editors, it is fundamentally serving a purpose, which is this um, patricidal impulse in Western culture of um, that the only way we're going to get to freedom is by destroying uh, ourselves um, and destroying what was handed on to us. And for that, um, the kind of all-consuming violent uh, jihadism preached by Hamas is a natural ally. Um, and it, it is truly frightening. I think one thing that um, I really would like to see explored more is uh, how much is TikTok uh, to blame for this among sentiment growing among young people? I mean, there's some uh, you know preliminary journalism I've seen showing just how crazily uh, anti-Israel content is spreading on TikTok, how much more viral it is, how much more the algorithm favors it and favors creators who are making it over those creating pro-Israel content. Um, you know, maybe a lot of this miseducation is happening, not just at schools, but you know, in the, in the, in the backseat of the car while you're yes. driving your kids to soccer practice. So Charlie asked a question to you. There's a poll, I think Gallup showing that Biden's approval rating down to 37% and he's lost, I think, 11 points among Democrats, which seems to be a reaction in his own party to the um, stalwart sentiments he's expressed about Israel publicly, whether you agree with what the ultimate policy is when the rubber hits the road or not. He's, he's said a lot of the right things. So the question is, will Biden end up bending to that element of his party more than he has to this point? Yes or no? More than he has to this point, yes, but not in a way that's going to satisfy them. I think we've already seen a little bit of backsliding. I think that was what the pivot to Islamophobia was about. Mm -hmm. And I think behind the scenes, we've seen a subtle shift in the enthusiasm for Israel's retaliation in the White House. But if the crazy, functionally pro-Hamas faction within the Democratic Party think that Joe Biden's going to get anywhere near them on this, they're mistaken. I read, Charlie, that Corrine Jean-Pierre thing <coughs> clearly. <clears throat> Three, two, one. Charlie, I read that Corrine Jean-Pierre thing. Clearly, she had something ready to go about Islamophobia, right? Because she went immediately to the briefing book, as she does about everything. But to get a question about anti-Semitism and then immediately start reading about Islamophobia, it's it's a... It shows a high level of incompetence and not just being good at the job, you know, finding some other appropriate segue because she had said something good about, you know, the squad, you know, the week before. And then, of course, the next day she has to come out and read from the briefing book, anti-Semitism is bad. You know, we, we denounce hatred of the Jews. So clearly, yeah, they want to get Islamophobia uh, into the conversation. But I don't think she meant to, to do it, you know, the, the way she ended up doing it well, was just no, but I just think that people ought to understand that the sort of uh, people who work 
in and close to the White House are really uncomfortable institutionally with the full-throated support that Joe Biden began his response to October 7th with. If you look at the progressive blob, which is very tightly connected to this White House, and even more so than it would be because Joe Biden's barely alive, the likes of Karine Jean-Pierre and others in her office are going to be daily told by their friends and peers, the people in the parking lot at school, that they are too pro-Israeli. And I think some mm -hmm. of the response that we have seen from the White House, I think that incident in particular was an attempt to reassure those people that the White House will still talk about the things that they care about. That was clearly driven mm -hmm. by institutional peer pressure because the Democratic Party in its modern incarnation has been taken over by a progressive movement that is hostile towards Israel. That's a key sociological insight, the, the conversations in the parking lot. It reminds me a little bit, our, our old uh, late great colleague, Cato Byrne, used to say, any given politician, if you want to know how right-wing and reliable he or she is, don't don't go on on what the politician says or, or where he or she supposedly is on stuff. Find out how conservative the spouse is, and, and that that's where uh, that's the key thing you need to know. So, Maddie, will Biden bend to this sentiment within his own party? Yes or no? So, I actually think foreign policy is one of the few areas where Biden shows consistency and and some degree of resolve for for better or for worse. You know, he obviously had been wanting to uh, steer clear of Afghanistan, get get the guys out of Afghanistan for years before he actually had the power to make that happen. Um, I think this is, I, you know, I, I agree with Charlie's characterization in the past, like Biden is somebody who looks which way the wind is blowing, but I think this is actually something that he does care about quite deeply. Um, I, I believe he's convicted on this. I also think that he is going to end up being influenced by the the loud wings and, and voices in, in his party. Um, but I have been encouraged so far by by his rhetoric and, and, and by his, you know, the, the statements against the squad. Um, and so I, I think that I agree with Charlie. They're they're not he they're not going to be satisfied. The the anti Israel mm -hmm. way are, are not going to be satisfied by by Biden. MBD. Yeah, I mean, the anti-Israel wing, I mean, their their demands are, I think, limitless at this point. I mean, they, they are indistinguishable from Hamas's as far as wanting Israel wiped off from the map. And Joe Biden is will fall well short of that genocidal standard here. Um, you know, Joe Biden is, is more pro-Israel than Barack Obama was. And... Um, Will probably mm -hmm. remain so um and they'll take that risk because um even if it it looks like it, it sh even if it looks like it's hurting him in the polls now i don't think it will matter in a one-on-one -on -one election against a republican yeah i think that's that's right you know biden has this this more ancestral attitude uh towards this conflict and toward israel i think he'll end up sounding a little bit more like the the people um, who reject that traditional attitude sh sh um, purely because of how conventional Biden is. He'll, he'll just end up, you know, oh, we need restraint. You've already seen some of this, and Israel's going going too far, not because he hates Israel, but 
that's just the typical conventional thing that happens, and and that pretty much is where Biden is on everything. And we're recording Friday morning. The the White House press briefing yesterday, as far as I I could tell, watching it on and off, was almost entirely devoted to questions about has Israel gone too far? Is it killing too many Gazans? How can you doubt the the health ministry's numbers? And is Israel committing war crimes or not? So that's a a sign of where the debate is going. With that, let me pause really briefly, mention once again our weekly version of the week, which is being distributed digitally now every Friday morning. It is uh, out, uh, I believe, as as we uh, speak and record here Friday morning, and just wanted to mention how you can get it for free in your inbox, really incisive, witty um, writing at nationalreview.com slash get the week. Go to nationalreview.com slash get the week, and you can sign up and get the week, as the URL says, for free every Friday morning. So MBD, we have these ongoing courtroom dramas involving Trump. You know, what we have basically where the the Republican nomination and primary battle should be. Instead, we have a a big ongoing series of of, uh, law and order starring Donald Trump. And then you have some bit players around the side who think they're running for president. Uh, when this is really the main event. And, you know, Trump's showing up every day at this fraud trial, you know, featured Michael Cohen this week. And we had this drama the other day where, of course, there's a gag order. There are two gag orders on on Trump. The one in in this one, uh, this trial, Trump went out and violated it by saying, you know, there's this one partisan and there's this um, other partisan sitting right next to him. And that was a reference to this clerk that Trump has said is Chuck Schumer's... (laughs) Chuck Schumer's girlfriend, <laughs> and uh, he goes back into the courtroom, and the judge is upset about this, and gets him in the dock, and says, "You know, who are you talking about?" He's, I, I was talking about you, Judge, and Michael Cohen. When he was clearly talking about the clerk, the judge fines him ten thousand dollars, and then, as Trump's defense is cross-examining Michael Cohen, and by the way, a, a def- the defense made a motion at one point with the the rolling of the eyes of the judge and the clerk is distracting. Can you please stop that? <laughs> but they asked Cohen, um, you know, did, did Trump ever tell you? to inflate the numbers. And Cohen's like, no, because he, he goes on to explain, you know, he communicated like a, a, a mafia don. He, he never tells you directly to go off the guy. <laughs> you know, it's all, all um, based on indirection. But anyway, so there's a, a defense motion right then to dismiss the case because it had been won because Michael Cohen admitted that he has never told to do this. And the judge, who's already said, you know, Trump is guilty and is losing, uh, even though we're having this this uh, supposed trial, um, s- denies the motion and Trump storms out and makes this brief statement you know, to the to the media. We won the case. We just won the case, everyone. You know, but the judge won't admit it. Secret Service runs after him and he, and he storms storms off. What do you make of it? And uh, there's there's more to come. Yeah, well, I mean, this is what we have. Um you know, Donald Trump should be doing this show while he's not running for president, but he's doing both at the same time. So we have no real campaign for president on the Republican side, but we have this and it is entertaining in its way. I mean, um, the fact is like Trump's persecutors always overreach and he always takes advantage of it. And, um, it always seems to work in his favor Although I do think, like, by the end, like, they may be putting him in prison. I mean, um, you know, when, once the once uh, the jury comes and, and puts you away, it's, you know, that's game over until, um, you know, until later notice. 
there must be something very funny about Trump's current lawyers looking across at Michael Cohen, one of his former lawyers. I am wondering oh when their fate will turn. <laughs> um, yeah. So speaking um, of, of former lawyers, Maddie, we we also have some action down in Georgia. Sidney Powell has pled guilty. This guy Kenneth Chesbro, Cheesebro, Chesbro, pled guilty. One or two others have have pled guilty. So that's presumably not a not a great sign. Um, although. Andy McCarthy makes the point. Well, they're not, you know, they're they're pleading out to really minor stuff. They're not not pleading out to what what's supposed to be the big RICO offense here. And then there's a word we don't know how accurate the reporting is, but that Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff at the end, uh, got immunity and has supposedly told Jack Smith and his prosecutors that he told Trump in the aftermath of the election, "Look, you lost. There's nothing to these." Uh, allegations of fraud, which would be a key piece of evidence going to Trump's state of mind and whether he was being deliberately deceptive. Yeah, so I find myself sort of sympathizing with the the judge who's rolling his eyes at this point. I mean, I think that this is just so repetitious and it's the same, it's the same basic pattern in every single one of these trials, which is that the, there are partisan actors. They also have a point. Um, the charges are overhyped arguably to the point of being unserious and Andy has has made a persuasive case for that about the the Georgia election interference case but nevertheless you have this media coverage and this impression um, which the New York Times and others love to go with which is that this is really bad news for Trump we finally but we finally got him this is really bad news you have this scene of Jenna Ellis um, his former lawyer in tears pleading guilty and that this is so it's, supposed to be sort of a guilt by association but then as Andy points out um, you know this she's pleading guilty to a, a minor charge uh, for which there is no there's no jail time now I, I share Michael's um, you know b- belief that this this could actually end up very badly for Trump but but in the meantime this is his political campaign this is his presidential campaign and it is actually benefiting him people enjoy this soap opera they enjoy the drama of it um, it feeds into his his basis uh, ideas about him being this victim, this this martyr who's who's oppressed by by the system, the, the partisans out to get him, the election stealers, and uh, and yeah, it's just on and on it goes. And we've, as you say, we've got much more of it to come. Charlie, are you are you combining a sigh and a pause? Are, are you allowed to do that? <laughs> <laughs> a pause, heavy sigh, or a sigh, heavy pause, depending on your perspective. And look, no one involved in this, and this is not an attempt to make it seem as if Donald Trump hasn't done anything that has put him in the courtroom. But no one involved in this, as in our broader politics, seems to be able to take the high ground. And Dan Foster, who used to write for us, often says, if one of the parties just sobered up and decided to be normal for a while, they might have a 30-year majority. Oh. Mm-hmm. I feel the same when I watch these court cases playing out. On the one hand, you have the Democratic Party or establishment, or at least people within the legal profession who are associated with the Democratic Party, who have pushed this far too far on many occasions, who are not behaving professionally, 
who are in some instances fulfilling electoral promises to go after Donald Trump, which is not how I think our system should work. On the other hand, you have Donald Trump, who has done many of the things that he's been accused of, or at least there is a great deal of evidence to suggest that he has done what he's being accused of, enough to get him into a courtroom on a civil or criminal charge, and who has decided to weaponize his predicament and to turn it into some sort of asset, and so who, who cannot just comply with it, who cannot behave well, and then take advantage of the fact that the other side has pushed it too far. And Donald Trump's lawyers are ostentatious and incompetent. His behavior is showy. I think it's just such an ugly spectacle. I also think that we're absolutely out of our minds if we're going to persist in choosing him as the national representative of the Republican Party and of our movement because, you know, you mentioned all of those people in this particular case who have <laughs> pleaded guilty, acknowledged sin. Well, it's because they did it. You know, this isn't some... 3D chess game, they did it. There was a massive amount of unethical behavior. And the reason that we have to watch this as the main thing in our politics is because there are enough people within the GOP who have persisted in picking Donald Trump. It would be interesting if Donald Trump had, after 2020, sort of faded away within the political environment and someone else was running away with the Republican primary. But it wouldn't feel so existential as it does. But this is a trial, and the next one will be as well, that will determine whether or not the Republican nominee for president, most likely, is in jail while running for president, or perhaps after having won, which is, seems unlikely, but not beyond the pale. So that's why I have a pause-laden sigh or a sigh-laden pause, because it's just... <laughs> it's a breakdown at all levels. And acknowledging that Donald Trump owes most of his situation to his own behavior does not excuse the way that the Democrats have conducted themselves around it either. And I just feel and across our entire landscape that there is no adult in the room. There is no one, or at least there is no adult in the room that the public wants to represent. So MBD, in terms of left of center opinion, Jack Smith will be the hero that Robert Mueller and so many others have not been. He will be the Ahab that actually spears and lands the white whale by convicting Donald Trump, making it impossible for him to win the presidency, and finally ending this uh, grave grave threat to democracy. Yes or no? I, yeah, I just can't see it. If 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 that mantle falls on him, it will only be temporary before the whale rises up and slaps its tail and destroys the boat. You know, like right. I I just don't. I just haven't seen it yet. I mean the. The, that, the wish you're referring to is like an apocalyptic wish in liberals that for Donald Trump to go away to oblivion. And that will happen one day, but liberals can't credit God for, for making all men mortal. So um, <laughs> they will remain un unsatisfied. Maddie. Um, no, I, I don't think so. I, 
I mean, maybe there there is a, something obvious I'm missing here, but I think the him being convicted and and it ruining his presidential ambitions are not really the same thing. Mm-hmm. Charlie. Well, I accept that those two questions aren't the same, but I think it's much more likely that this or one of the other cases is going to end in a way that Donald Trump's foes desire, purely because unlike with Russiagate, there is some substance here. And the problem with the last go-around was that it was made up. It was based on fumes. Whereas, you know, not all of the cases that have been brought against Trump have ballast, but a couple of them do. And I don't think he's going to skate on all fronts. So I don't know whether it'll be Jack Smith, but someone is going to put a dent in Trump because Trump has done, unlike with Russiagate, some of what he's been accused of having done. Yeah, I think Jack Smith probably convicts him. Um, but I think it's uh, the whale survives and the, the whale, if the whale goes down in 2024, it'll be for other reasons. MBD, let's hit a few other things before we go. Your son is disappointed in you. Yeah, my son um, has uh, lately found out that athletes make a lot of money. So he's decided he's going to make a career in tennis, right? Because he, he watched a tennis match. And then found out that like the winner of Wimbledon makes like two point three million dollars, and the the loser of the final match even makes one point three million. So, you know, it's uh, it's on. So uh, we were talking about this in the car, and then he asked me like, well, what about golf? Well, how much do you win if you if you win at golf? And I looked up the prize money for the Open in the, in the British Isles, and that's three million dollars. He says, well, I can play tennis and you can play golf. <laughs> I, I broke it to him and I said, well, I can play golf. I like golf, but, you know, I'm not going to be able to play for money. I'm too old to win money in tournaments like the Open. And then flashing anger, he says, what, I have to do all the work around here? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I admire him for the ambition, though. <laughs> so, so, Matt, you saw Town. Yeah, it's a, a Broadway play. I think it's been out for a while. Um, a kind of retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice, or Eurydice, however you pronounce it. Um, but it was really, really fun. And uh, it was funny because sitting in front of us was one of the actors, I guess you'd call her a super fan. She had earrings on with the actor's face on them. <laughs> she she was holding a, a bunch of flowers and, and, and we decided, like, you know, let's just... Uh, Let's just like see how this goes when she meets her, the, the object of her affection. So we, we waited, you know, you could do this thing on Broadway where the actors come mm-hmm. out and they sign the programs. And we just saw this, this woman's dream come true. And I thought it was funny. This is one of those things where because she's like a young woman, possibly like slightly autistic, you know, she kind of seems like a vulnerable person. It's really cute and endearing. But if this had been a man and like this had been a female mm-hmm. act- actress, this would have been like creepiest thing ever. <laughs> so... I had a somewhat similar experience. I was in a hotel in Washington once where the New York Mets were staying to play the Nationals. And there was this uh, kid who um, he, he, he got, you know, he, he was, every single Mets guy stopped and signed his, his ball because he was, he was still cute, just kind of barely cute. But like one more year, he would have been <laughs> obnoxious. They all would have brushed by him. So he got, he got his signature as well. The getting was good. Charlie. 
Well, I have an update. My son is still batting a thousand. It's actually astonishing. I I don't know. <laughs> We've been through I think six games now, and in his last game, I was very proud of him. I have to say this. I was very proud of him because he got hit in the head by a baseball. The ball went up, 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 up. He couldn't see it because of the sun. He got hit in the head. It was a second pitch, although it's T-ball. Second pitch of the game. So, of course, he ran to me, and he didn't want to go back in. So we took a little walk, and then his head started to feel better. <laughs> and then he went back in. and he This got... is what the concussion protocol used to be in the NFL. Exactly, exactly. Well, I did check all of that. I was, how many fingers am I holding up, and so on and so on. But uh, then he went back in, and uh, he got five hits. Uh, including uh, three triples. He got two runs and he got two outs in the field and the game ball. So from being wow, hit by good. a baseball to getting so, the game ball was pretty great. So it's not station to station. They, they can, they can run more than just a first after they get a hit. Um, they can at this stage. They didn't used to mm-hmm. be able to in my other son's, baseball which is which is machine pitch they can actually run they can hit essentially a home run although there's no mm. wall they have to right. it's an inside the park home run in effect. yeah 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 so i was on larry kudlow's show the other day and larry is just he's he's just so incredibly likable and an affectious and enthusiasm and sense of conviction about whatever he he's on at at the moment and uh, this uh, the other day it was we need to interdict one Iranian ship just one to to show them we're we're paying attention and he he's uh, was right about that as he is about many other things so let's do some editors picks before we go MBD what's your pick uh, my pick I'm still mining from the our monthly issue of the magazine the November issue Evolve Events the GOP should be the party of parents uh, I just think this is a an both uh, a great but also somewhat obvious insight about where the party's strength is, where there is a viable source for conservative reform and uh, popular politics. Um, and uh, it's just great. Read the wise live in. Maddie, what's your pick? Uh, my pick is Jack Butler's piece uh, in response to a piece in the Scientific American that was profoundly unscientific. It was uh, he was correcting their stance on on sex differences and athletic performance. So recommend. Charlie, my piece is by Amity Schleyers. It's called "That Old Republican Brawl." It's about the nineteen twelve election, which Amity Schleyers worries might provide a blueprint for the 2024 election if Republicans aren't careful. I have my own worries about the 2024 election and its long-term consequences, but they don't go all the way back to 1912. And this is a good little historical reminder uh, that having won for decades, the Republicans let the Democrats back in by running two Republicans against one another, splitting the vote. The result was Woodrow Wilson and disaster. So my pick is the work of our new political reporter, Audrey Fallberg. She joined us basically, I don't know, might have been the day or a day before Kevin McCarthy went down and she's been covering the speaker's race ever since and did a, a great job with it. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine strictly 
prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to Made In. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.